Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Then we realize, in other words, the entire thing was custom. There's just no way that anybody can afford to build this. Every single piece would be custom. So the next step is to go and kind of rationalize that back to make sure that we still had the effect that we were getting performative. And we narrowed it down to 24 panels and we had this, even that was a hard sell to our client. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voices that you heard in our opening are my guests, Paul Tang, founding principal, and Courtney Bauer, principal from First Design LA, or VDLA, with independently operated offices in Los Angeles and Shanghai. Paul is the co-founder of First Design. Prior to establishing First Design, Paul taught at USC School of Architecture for 19 years. His identity as an architect has always been defined by academia and practice. Paul never made any distinction between school and work. To him, architectural engagement is the same, whether as a practitioner or as a student-slash-teacher. While he acknowledges that there are differences, it is only parametric and contextual. In other words, regardless of the parameters that establish the context for architectural engagement, Design as a critical creative process remains the same. Verse Design, despite being a small firm, has built over 5 million square feet of projects since 2012. Prior to co-founding Verse Design LA in 2015, Courtney Bauer worked as a project architect at offices on both coasts of the United States. She met firm partner Paul Tang in academia when both were architecture professors at USC. Courtney has also taught at SciArc and UCLA. Courtney leverages more than 20 years of focused experience in architectural planning, design, and contract administration, 
on a variety of projects in the United States and China. Her work is committed to the ideas and importance of efficient and sustainable construction while advocating for the implementation of innovation in our built environment. Courtney's strengths lie in her ability to adroitly identify a project's status and manage a team to exceed delivery expectations. The project we are going to chat about today is 3075 Tech in Santa Clara, California. One seriously cool-looking building, I might add. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click on the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. Located near the intersection of Scott Boulevard and San Tomas Expressway in Santa Clara, an approximately 119,000 square foot site awaited its next life. The property owner, MDY Properties, set out to develop a high-end office building. As the development team ran the numbers on the project, Paul found himself on the other side of the world actively growing his practice. But let's back up a bit. In 2009, I am still at that time teaching at USC, we established the American Academy in China. It's a research platform. My practice in China, the one that I set up, which is first design, I moved the whole company out there because it was just a year after the Great Recession. There was nothing happening here. Within a year, it went from five people to about 75 people. Wow. It got so successful to the point where in 2012, the university says, hey, you're full-time. You need to come home. And I couldn't come home. And so the decision on my 19th year, I decided to just resign. Forced into that decision. Yeah, Yeah, more or less. (laughs) And I have to say, it's a good decision. In late 2014, the client approached me and said, hey, listen, have you thought about coming back? And part of it is because I knew the client. We had done some proposals and design proposal. Nothing ever got built, but she kind of remembered. And so this client approached us and said, hey, listen, we're going to do a limited invitational only competition. We were probably the smallest outfit. And so we were headed up against some major corporates. Uh, There was a fee, but very small. I think it was like $40,000, but the request was just enormous. They were looking for fly-throughs in addition to just traditional renderings. So I did a little bit of research with Courtney's assistance and realized the, the property in itself at the time did not have any zoning. So any kind of competition, it would be a beauty contest. Right. And so the second thing was I did not have the deep pockets to invest, although I have $40,000, but to get the renderings done, even using the teams in China, I know that I don't blow that budget. And so the decision was maybe we'll look at it in a slightly different way. One of the few things that I learned while working in China is learning how to look at the project from the perspective of the developer. And Well, the developers, and I also learned that I rarely have a design or a theoretical conversation with my clients, particularly developer clients. 
And so I learned to look at where their interests are, which predominates the finances, the economics of the project. So instead of doing the design and participating in the beauty contest, the decision was to really analyze the existing code to see what the possibilities might be. So that yielded about nine different possibilities in terms of how the project could fit onto the, what otherwise is a relatively very tight site. With that nine possibilities, we generated nine different uh, performers. Spreadsheets. Spreadsheets. It was just presentation of pure spreadsheet. And Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So the presentation was in San Francisco. I flew from Shanghai to San Francisco. My flight got delayed. I was the third one out of four. And luckily I got delayed. So they switched it around a little bit. I ended up to be dead last. Best position to be in. That's right. In an interview, best position is to go last. Unfortunately, by the time I got there and handed out these A3 size, which is cool and joy, love my 17 handouts of just pure numbers. The client cocked their head, looked at me and says, I hired you as a designer. I have the projection ready and you mean to tell me you have nothing to show me other than just numbers? I said, well, if you can just humor me a little bit, because out of those nine different uh, performers, not a single one of them tells me the project's viable. And so my message to her was, I think you might want to rethink this through because why do a project when the finances and the economics don't work, right? And she got really angry at me. Uh-oh. She says, I have an entire development team that has vetted this thing through. What made you think as a designer that you know better? And I realized that moment, oh my God, I think I just lost the competition. Well, just completely lost it. And I said, listen, I apologize, right? But uh, still, I would still like to present this to you. So she says, okay, I'll humor you. So tell me. So I went through the whole thing, show her what I thought was the approximate construction cost, what I thought might be the revenue uh, stream. And the mistake I made in there was I marked down $2.50 a square foot as the leasable price. When in fact, at that moment in time, Silicon Valley, it's already above three. And that's why my numbers are not working. So she looked at me, she, she says, your fundamentals are wrong. You should have plugged in $3. So why don't you, if it's easy, why don't you plug in the $3 to see if the numbers jump? And it's that easy. I said, yeah, it's relatively easy. All I got to do is change one variable to see how and hold the nine different spreadsheets, how they pencil out in the end. Well, amazingly, I, I changed the 250 to $3, which is a 20% increase in revenue per square foot. Right. All the numbers turned green. Like every one of them works. So I started to pack up and I said, look, I'm really sorry. I obviously had overstepped my bounds and I know you're looking for a designer, but just to let you know, the one thing that I don't think anybody would have told you is that there's no zoning this moment in time. So whatever it is I designed for you, it's a beauty contest. By the time you really get started, we're going to have to redesign the whole thing anyway, based on true criteria that we will negotiate with the, with the city. And she says, you know, I paid you $40,000 to give me a design. I say, listen, I made the mistake. You pay for my airfare. I'm not going to take your 40000 Right? She says, huh. So she says, you flew in from Shanghai 
just to tell me not to do the project? I said, yes. So she says, that means that you're going to leave here today empty-handed. I said, hey, listen, you call me. I didn't call you. Right? You obviously call me from something you remember that I'd done for you, although it was never built. So if it's a viable project, I'm sure you call me the next time. And I hope you will do that again. She paused for a second and says, can you excuse me? I need to talk to my team. So asked me to leave the conference room. I went outside. The, someone brought me a cup of coffee. I think I only took about two or three sips. Someone comes out, invites me back in, sits me down. And she says, you know, I'm a little upset at you. I say, no, I can tell. <laughs> and she says, but what you just, I just realized that you were actually willing to come to by 6,000 miles to tell me not to do a project and go home and be ended. I say, yes. She says, well, then you're really looking after my interests. That was your goal. I say, yes. And the next question was, well, I talked to my team. First question, do you still have an office in LA? I say, no. And the next question is, how long would it take you to set it up? I say, six months. She says, okay. I think uh, I'm going to award you the, the, the project. VDLA was tasked with design of a signature building that would attract tech industry tenants. The intent of the proposed commercial development was to provide first-class office space to anchor all businesses in the area, creating a unified corporate center. We have some very hard objectives set by the client that we had to achieve. The formal quality of it really has come down to exactly the total area that the developer was looking for. So we also, in addition to just understanding what the total size needs to be, is we actually have worked together with, we worked with Cushman Wakefield from the get-go, right? What we found out in the beginning at that time, which is pre-pandemic, the most desired building is to create a building for a single tenant. And what they're looking for is absolutely 200,000 plus. Anything below that, they're not interested. Second tier potential clientele for the building are single floor tenants requiring about 40 to 45,000 square feet. And we are allowed about six stories. So with those criteria, that's how the form was derived. How do I achieve 200,000 square feet and about 40 to 45,000 square feet plates and fit it on site? So we've got the best leaseability options, which proved very useful down the road. But yeah, positioning it that way um, was absolutely necessary for us. It also just keeps along with this byline of like advocating for the client and making sure that they're getting everything that they need and the projects can be positioned as best as possible. So that gets you your overall massing. And then we have the criteria of class A office, right? And so what does that mean for a large kind of marquee building like this? And one of those parameters was floor to ceiling glass. We we're trying to achieve floor to ceiling glass. It's really hard to do with the prescriptive energy codes in California. So, you know, we were really pushing that and figuring out how we could achieve that. And at one point we were nowhere close. We even did it analytically, right? Even through the analytical approach to trying to mitigate heat gain, right? When you got floor to ceiling glass, any site, your south, southwest, and even to some extent your east facing walls are going to receive a lot of heat gain. And so the question really is, how do you design in such a way that the building remains cooler? 
so you don't have to waste so much energy in cooling it down. One of the options that was provided to us was obviously you make the building more reflective, right? And we just, you know, this is where the willfulness of the architect, you know, we just didn't like the idea of a complete mirrored facade. So in fact, one of the few things that the our uh, GLUMAC, our uh, MEP as well as, as well as energy consultant, say, hey, listen, you're gonna need some kind of a brisolet at least in on the south, west, and southwest facades. Brief Soleil is an architectural feature of a building that reduces heat gain within that building by deflecting sunlight. In the typical form, a horizontal projection extends from the sun side facade of a building. More recently, vertical Brief Soleil has become popular. Both systems allow low-level sun to enter a building in the mornings, evenings, and during winter, but cut out direct sunlight during summer. So they did a study just by creating a, uh, fundamentally just a wall at those elevations, and then changed the porosity to a certain degree, right? And then ran another test. And no matter how we run it, the best we can get in terms of the transparency versus opaque ratio was only at about 57%, I think. And we need to achieve above and beyond 70%, right? So, but since they, they recommended that those are the walls and those are the facades and needs to have a secondary resolace system. So in the beginning, what we had done was, okay, in order to really achieve above 70% transparency, the way in which those brisolets, they need to react directly to the angle in which the relation of the, the facade to the relationship with the angle of the sun. So then each of those facades was calculated to arrive at the most optimum angle to allow me to mitigate the direct solar heat gain average out over the course of the year, obviously paying the most attention during the summer solstice. For the facade design, VDLA was inspired by the concept of digital rain from the Matrix films, aiming to interpret it in three dimensions. We have been testing with the idea of louvers on several projects in the past. One of the few things that we learned is that louvers, in addition to being just a form of resolet that help you reduce heat gain, there is an amazing visual quality to it that actually will make it very dynamic depending on the position of the viewer and the position of the day that they like, direct sunlight, right? Because it will capture daylight in a very different way. As the sun moves, it will also change. Your shade and shadow, transparency versus uh, translucency will also change. Same thing as you walk around, Remember the, I, well, maybe some of your audience don't remember, but I certainly do. Prior to any kind of digital billboards, they used to make those billboards that if you look at it from a certain direction, it says one thing. And you look from a different direction, it's a different thing. Is they're kind of triangulated. And so we realized that, that as the, the audience move about, depending on that, the position of those louvers, you can create a very different look. So the challenge was, number one, the relationship to matrix, at least in my mindset when I started, was it had to do with, you know, this whole digital revolution that we're in. Matrix was one of the very first movies that talked about 
what that future possibility could be, right? But the, one of the few things I remember that always loved was that it's called the digital rain, the green screen at the beginning of every one of the, the series. So whereas in the past, our louvers are very straightforward and Courtney challenged me to say, hey, listen, you know what? We've done, you've done that, right? We've done that on several projects. How do we make it so it's absolutely random? And because he has that dynamic quality to it, what she calls the effervescence, right? And how do we then use that same idea and create that effect? There's only one color we use in terms of the skin color of that building, okay? which predominantly the reading is the Louvre. But if you look at any static photograph, or if you look at it, it actually looks like it has a variety of different shades of one very warm gold color. Right. It has the warmth and the gold, but it almost goes to completely silver, silver white, depending on the angle on the sun. Right. Um, so you kind of enter into this gracious public space, which didn't exist before, which we felt like would be a great addition to the area and a signature. And then you're kind of flanked by this warm, dynamic louver on the one side. And then you've got, we did, we had a very tight site. And so we had parking in very close proximity. And so we wrapped that, we continued kind of the modulation and the rhythm around the building and wrapped that with the green screen, which was also it was very specific in how that was done. The landscape architects had to pick different plants for every side and vary those so that when they, they had different flowering seasons and it would always be very right. It's a living it's a living green wall, the one that wraps the parking structure. So if you're patient and sit in that little plaza and watch the sun move, you will see that entire Louvre facade shimmer very slowly. Not as dynamic as, say, the Pantheon, right, when you can see the light coming through the Oculus move. But in this one, you will see slowly over time how the pattern will change and the gradation of the different shades will slowly begin to migrate change and the colors will change, right? So the daytime capture of the building tends to be cooler and then it gets in the afternoon, it tends to get really warm. And it's not just the warmness of the sun it actually began, the color changed towards the gold, whereas in the daytime, it's towards the silver. So it's a highly dynamic quality to that with the intent that that shimmering, if you speed it up, it actually looks like that green ring, the digital ring. The building envelope is a curtain wall that captures a blank canvas of sky for the sunshade structure to perform. That took a lot of time because... You know, the unitized curtain wall part's not so difficult, but if you've seen the building, you notice that one half has a catwalk and unitized sunshades that hang from the catwalk. And getting that design nailed down took a lot of in-person meetings and coming up with a way to design the brackets for the catwalk system because it actually, it dead loads mainly from steel that cantilevers off the roof, but it does pass part of the dead load and the wind load through the curtain wall system. So that really took in-person coordination to come up with a design that's going to work for that. This is Jacob Evans, project executive with Architectural Glass and Aluminum, the curtain wall subcontractor on 3075. So the unitized curtain wall itself is uh, structurally glazed. It, it has a high thermal performance, and there was also high acoustic ratings that we had to achieve on the project. So we had to do multiple testing to validate that. 
Then on the kind of the backside, not the main entrance that has the unitized sunshades we were discussing, it's got a variation of zero, three, six, and nine inch vertical fins on the curtain wall system that makes kind of a gradation pattern as you're viewing it. And it, it changes depending on the angle you're viewing the building, which is really cool. And then also the side that does have the sunshade system and it is a basically a picture frame, aluminum angle picture frame that's infilled with various football shape aluminum extrusions that are thread onto a square tube at various angles to achieve the aesthetic look that VDLA was going after. The project had purchased a full-size mock-up, so we actually built a structure at a performance mock-up testing lab just, just for visual purposes and installed full-size curtain wall, a section of the catwalk, with sunshades on the outside. And the person who manages the lab had called us on a weekend saying, hey, it's pretty windy out here. And these things are making a lot of noise. Now, we had to go out there and check it because those football shapes are threaded onto an internal aluminum tube and there's tolerance in between the components. There's a little bit of rattling that happens. And luckily we found it during that visual mock-up process and not when it's hanging on the job, making a wind chime essentially. So we were able to work through that by um, each football shape had a custom CNC end cap that tied them together. So that eliminated the movement between the various angle football shapes and then also isolation between the internal tube and the sunshade extrusion itself. And that fixed it. And if you were to go out on site today and try to rattle one of those things, it makes no noise. So that was an unexpected problem that we ran into. Luckily, we ran into it before the final construction and we were able to fix it. That was really trick because of all the loads that come along with a steel catwalk on the outside of a curtain wall system, and then to have sunshades hung from that and figuring out how to transfer those loads through the curtain wall system back to structure because the curtain wall could never support that. Traditionally, with a unitized curtain wall system, we're using a slab edge channel embed but the concrete slab was so thin and lightweight that it, it couldn't take those loads. So we actually had to use a steel anchor welded to the face of slab bent plate that had some rebar going back into the concrete to withstand the loads that the curtain wall system and catwalk and sunshade would impose upon it. So half the building has a welded steel anchor and the other half uses the channel impeds that I brought up. So the curtain wall on that side, every other unit, has a steel bracket that goes from the slab edge anchor through the curtain wall, is totally waterproof, and provides an attachment point for that catwalk system and actually transfers the load through the curtain wall back to structure, which is a really cool aspect. And the loads were very high. So every other unit has an HSS 2x10 behind the shadow box panel. So it's really beefy. It's something you, you'll never see unless you were part of the manufacturing of the curtain wall or the installation because it's all hidden behind the interior construction and, and the glass and shadow box. But to, to make that happen is pretty impressive. The louvers are prefabricated four and a half foot wide modules that extend the full height of the building to align with the curtain wall bay. Each module contains multiple pixels of aluminum louvers. I mean, it was challenging, but that was fun. fun. Yes. <laughs> then we had the louver and we had to pull it away from the building to make sure that you could wash, access the curtain wall. And so then we had this 36 inch 
six inches away from the building, hanging this big old louver. Well, we ended up hanging it. We had to figure out how we were going to support that and then designing those kind of three systems together. That became, from the design side, I think the biggest challenge. So we had curtain wall, catwalk system in between, and then louver system, which we ended up hanging from the roof. So it had to hang over with eight foot parapet on the roof. And this was suspended out by kind of buttresses. And the cantilever uh, yeah. from over the, the roof. The entire system is hung. So part of the challenge is also that to prevent this entire curtain wall or this louver system from lateral swinging, it has to be tied back. Pinned back through the curtain through the curtain wall, but then you also had to mitigate thermal, thermal bridging. bridging, right? And then we had all the dynamic loading that was potential there on the on the curtain wall when someone was accessing it for, for maintenance or otherwise. Those were the ones that are, in my opinion, not as fun. So, but let me get to the part that was challenging, but still fun. There's a step in between just to get the type of randomness that we're looking for and the effects we're looking for. So it's a way in which we use the intelligent systems, the technology, the scripting, but also, you know, the human input, right, to make a determination based on the options provided. We fundamentally had to break that entire facade into a grid and not necessarily the construction grid, right, but at a grid so that we actually use the word pixelation. So again, it relates back to the whole digital world, right? And so the way the digital rain is created in the movie, it's also pixelating of a Japanese uh, character, okay? So what we had done was we fundamentally had decided that this thing needed to be in a random, random pattern, right? So We wanted to blur the floor plates. So it needs to have the randomness. So it came down to... When we first arrive at that perfect angle where it all works, we then have to break some of those rules. Not rules, but we have to make some less efficient and others more efficient because they begin to change angles, right? Implant, right? Those loops are going to begin to change. Then we have to establish like how much can I change, right? And so therefore, if you imagine there's that grid on the facade and every one of them is like a big pixel, right? So the whole thing's pixelated. So then it randomizes itself. But then we need to find that option where the combination of these louvers will give me the end shading coefficient we're looking for. Then what we discovered was, you know, on a flat surface, you got 180 degrees you can work with. But because you have an orientation of the sun and only in certain degrees, a certain range, that helped us narrow that down a little bit more. And then just from pure manufacturing, you can't be infinite. Right. So I think in the end, we came down with, we decided that the best option for was only three different stops. Right. The stops are 15 degrees apart. Right? So we, we narrowed it down to just that 90 degree range. We realized that depending on where you start, it actually affects your, your shading coefficient. Right. The easy thing with us to say you stop, you start with at zero and you go 15, 30, 45, right? 60 and 90. It turns out that's not the best solution. The solution through multiple iterations, we realized it was that it was at 520, 35. So it's like five degrees off. That little five degrees, given the location and orientation of our louvers, was the most optimal. Then the other thing was to really look at the shape of that louver. They could be flat, 
They could be in any shape you can imagine. Well, we found that elliptical, so that the the airfoil's uh, shape was the best one that actually helped me reduce the, the again, the shading coefficient. The lower I get that number, the more more heat gain I, I block out. Right? So that took an enormous amount of effort of just iterative testing, testing, and more testing. By the time we got to our final thing, it was amazing. We loved it. It's doing everything we're asking it to do, right? Not only was it changing, you know, we, we actually created a model and we moved the cameras around to see if it actually was shimmer. We painted in our digital model, one side yellow, the other side blue, just so that you can see the gradations of the yellow, blue, and how they change, just by moving the camera back and forth, side to side, right? And then we moved the sun around to see if those shading of the blue and the yellow would change, and it did. The third test was what is that transparency when you see through from the inside? And the fourth thing is to see how much direct daylight you're going to get on the inside. And are you actually capturing more of the ambient light rather than direct sunlight? After all that test is done, we got to that model where it was perfect. Then we realized, in other words, the entire thing was custom. There's just no way that anybody can afford to build this. Every single piece would be custom. So the next step was to go and kind of rationalize that back to make sure that we still had the effect that we were getting performative. Right. And we narrowed it down to 24 panels. And we had this, even that was a hard sell to our client. When it came to delivering and construction, this complex shading structure required special attention. The designing of this louver system did not end until it was completely done and built. We were making modifications as we go. We found so many problems in terms of just uh, installation that we had to go back and change the way it's fabricated. We have mandated that they do mock-ups, off-site mock-ups, right, to really figure this out. That became even more important because the contractual separation between curtain wall, catwalk, and louver, we had hoped that they would all be done by one person, but ended up being contractually separated. So going through that assembly, they had to do it twice, right. but just being able to reach in, in around and figure out the fasteners, we were helping them kind of tweak and, and make adjustments to the design to be able to actually install it, I'll said. And then there's this really unique star-shaped rod that aligns everything. Well, two things that they did to align everything, but one, the star-shaped rod, we ended up having to add additional gaskets to make sure that that was a little bit of a tighter fit to cut down on um, rattling that was happening. That we've, that we, luckily, I think it was Alan, the owner's rep, just went over and like really aggressively shook it, you know, which was great. That's what you should be doing on a mock-up. I think everyone was kind of walking gingerly around things. Yeah, because we're <laughs> treating it as a piece of artwork. Like, he got in hell and down and just shook the hell out of it. <laughs> he says, it's rattling. He said, well, Alan, you shook it. He said, well, the wind's going to cost it to shake. I thought, oh, yeah, you're right. And that in itself was a huge challenge. And it was a hairline gap between the star-shaped core and the fittings around that. And just that alone, and because we have louvers, right, that changes angle along one axis, that's when we realize, oh, my God, there's too many moving parts in here, and it's going to rattle. The other thing that the louver manufacturer brought to us, the shop drilling stage, was the end caps to the louvers. They actually made custom end caps for the top and the bottoms at various angles, right? And that helped to lock things together. 
as opposed to taking each link and just capping it with the standard one. They made these custom pieces that actually accommodated for the shift between two on top and bottom, and that locked them together as well. So cutting down on that, that movement. Good thing that you found that during the mock-up stage. Good thing you had a mock-up stage because you got to write that into your specifications. Otherwise, no one's going to do it. <laughs> the complexity of this design illuminated lessons for Paul and Courtney, particularly around coordination with all stakeholders. That trifecta of owner, architect, contractor, and like subcontractor, which are really so crucial these days in the in the built environment because the main contractor is less of like the master builder, right? Those are coming down to the subcontractors which actually really have their hands in it and know the work. And so focusing on remembering that we've got to have like very in-depth conversations about how things are going to pan out or the process in which we're going to go through with the various contractors up front. So that, because we think we're clear, we think we're clear in our documents, we think we're clear, even when we were reviewing bids, right? But there are always things that somehow seem so fundamental and get missed. And just making sure that those conversations are had with all three parties, owner, architect, contractor, even when, you know, everyone is in the mode of like, we don't need more meetings. We just need to like say what it is and move forward. Those initial meetings where you're really talking through things. So you get on the same page starting out are, I think, in and set expectations and then identify like, oh, we are not aligned here at all on like how we're going to deliver this or what we think the process is going to be. How many times do we think we're going to go through shop drawings? What do we need to know what do they need to know from us in order to, to make their work more efficient? You're preaching to the choir. I don't know how many times in my classes or with younger staff that I mentor that, you know, you hear those dreaded words in architecture. I don't have time. And, you know, I don't have time for more meetings. Guess what? You don't have 20 times as much time to fix what people perceived differently down the road. You know, that one hour that you're going to spend now that you don't think you really have could save you in some cases, hundreds later. Yeah, that's right. Because the documents are there, but they're still documents. And, you know, as, as people are generating documents now, there's more diagramming and there's more 3D visualization, which is helpful. I, I like putting that kind of thing into the documents, but having the direct conversation is just, it's so much more straightforward. And then you go look at the documents like, oh yeah, that's exactly, it's all there. I can see it now, but you, it's helpful to have that conversation. Yeah. Part of what Courtney is saying in a funny way, because I've done projects overseas, becomes truly the critique of our process here. Because right? I think due to different risk management practices, right, we have this clear separation of what you do, what I do, right? We try to avoid even wanting to touch what we feel like it's somebody else's responsibility. But to really make this whole thing work, I think we need to be able to truly understand that it's not something that is designed by us only. It's also designed by the fabricators. It's also designed by the builders. Because right? part of the discovery during the, the erection process, we discovered where original thought of the, the, just in terms of means and method and the sequence, we had to completely change it. 
it used to be the initial thought was we go from top down. And as we started doing that, we realized, wait a second, the mock-up may have worked because they had a hammer and knocked it in. But when you're really doing that, you can't even get your hand in there to tighten this one little very important connect. So we then had to make a very uh, modification to the access to that connector. But that then tells me we have to go from the bottom up. It was a complete change. And so just in terms of means and method of construct of erection, then becomes in that process actually has tremendous amount of design input, right? Because part of what we're insisting on is also the consideration of the spacing. And because these things are all prefabricated, they come in a, in a unitized piece within a frame, the whole frame gets lifted up in place, right? But by the time the whole thing's assembled, you actually don't see the frame, right? And the second thing that made it challenging is because we have a curve. It's easy when you have a continuous surface. And it, well, I shouldn't say it's easier. It's, it's tough even when you have a smooth surface, a contiguous surface. But when you have these louvers all at different angles, and then you're trying to do a curve where none of your frames are curved. They're literally faceted. They're rectangular and flat. How do you then allow the read uh, at the end to look as if it's a smooth surface, right? When you, right? So I think the biggest lesson learned in that regard is you realize that we as designers are not necessarily totally in charge. It really is at that moment in time a collaborative process, not just between the designers, but also the fabricators and the number, the different number of contractors or subcontractors involved. Because in the end, it's one thing, right? It's not six trays, seven designers, you name it. At the end, it's one thing. And so, you know, there was some risk that we took um, when we realized that um, some of our subcontractors are not exactly how, they don't really have the resources to do the type of testing so that you know that curve could be perfect. So what we did is we actually did this shop drawing for that. They gave us the information and we took their information and realized this is how they fabricate them. And instead of asking them to keep correcting and changing, correcting, changing, we say, I'll tell you what, off the record, I'm gonna give you a digital CAD file. You look at it, review it. As this long is as- how we think it. This is how we think yeah. it needs to be. We had worked through a couple, you know, a couple steps with them already, and we felt comfortable doing that. But we also knew when we were putting the bid documents together for this that okay, we've got our digital file here for these louvers, and we we are going to need to have a conversation and be collaborative mm -hmm. in order to make sure that this that the pattern gets gets out there and gets done correctly because. What a shame it would be, right, to just hold on to the digital file out of risk management alone and not have it it's all backwards or half half wrong, right? So they actually did a really good job, but the yeah. curve was a challenge for them. Sure, and sure that's where we, there, we said, okay, we're ready. And of course, all along, we had a very supportive client. They allowed us to, to really do this. But on the other hand, the way it was designed, you didn't have a choice. You don't have a louver system, you don't have a building. And you don't have the, not just a building, right? You don't have this building in this iteration, but you don't have the floor to ceiling glass that you ended up, you know, big point for the leasability. You don't have all of the floor area. And, and, and I think at no time have we ever told our client that we think this looks better. I think it always came down to 
Like, where's the value, right? Meeting those client goals. So what did you end up with for square footage? 200 and by Boma, about 230,000 square feet. Well, I was just going to say, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. RFP process. Nobody was getting over 190. That's right. Yeah. You promised to get 200 and you got 230 out of this building? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You probably have every developer in town lining up. And it's gorgeous. VDLA was charged with designing a signature building that would attract tech industry tenants. They created a beautiful building that provided approximately 230,000 gross square feet of first-class office space on six levels. Amazon Web Services, or AWS, initially committed to two floors of the six-story building. During the build-out of the interior tenant improvement, AWS expanded their footprint, signing a lease for the entire building. This was Silicon Valley's only large single-tenant office building lease coming out of the pandemic era. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. As fellow educators, I was curious what Courtney and Paul thought needed to change in architecture education. It's acknowledging that the architectural profession is constantly changing and therefore the education has to constantly change. And more simply, not less critical of the academia in that the students do need to be prepared to understand not only the the conceit of being an architect, but also the business of being an architect and then how to get things built, which is changing a lot and keeps changing. Right. I mean, there years ago, the architects were there wasn't this big divide. They could walk out on site, make changes, make recommendations. They do it this way. There wasn't these legal problems around those conversations. So somehow acknowledging in school that this is a business and we are trying to build things also, as well as be critical thinkers the legal angles, the business angle, and and help shape our architects don't spend their time often helping to shape the business of architecture and the actual work out of school once you once you need to, to try and build it. And I think in education, if the students are kind of their mind was open to those aspects earlier on, then you know, as the next generations come through, we'll have we'll have more success and yeah, I think at the end is how we apply that criticality and the fact that we're a design-oriented uh, education system. So the creativity doesn't need to be just in that traditional sense of aesthetics design, but the creativity could be applied across the board because of the complexity that it takes for us to make it something real, right? And that's what Courtney was just saying. There's the business end of it. There is the legal end of it. There are far more things that are involved, but architects can definitely take on the creative leadership in all those aspects, right? And then allowing that to, to consolidate. It's kind of like the conductor of an orchestra. You have that skill set to actually bring it all together if you're willing to take on the challenge and not hide behind this risk management uh, shield. I really enjoyed this conversation with Paul and Courtney. 
I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you hope to leave on this world on your path to world domination. Well, for me, I haven't done it yet. That's the statement. I'm still looking for that next one to dominate me. Right? <laughs> you know, it's a tough question for me, and the reason why my answer is I haven't done it yet is I've never tried to do it. Right? And it, it may be very selfish of me to say, hey, I'm just doing what I like to do. But at the same time, I think it's really not about me trying to leave something for somebody else. The legacy is not for me to say. It's for the people who experience the buildings we design, right? It's for them to say. When people look back, I mean, the memory of me or, or how I influenced them, that they can say, okay, that person was like reliable and caring and intuitive and, and touch them in, in those ways. Less about the space. I, I love to make great space. I want to make great spaces for people to be in, of course. But in a professional realm, I mean, you know, we make that space and hopefully it touches way more people than we actually get to talk to. But I want conversations and the, and the engagement that we have along the way to be as meaningful. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.